what a delight to be with you. Uh, I'm going to have difficulty not getting emotional. <laughs> uh, many of you who have talked uh, since I've been here and met you before in various conferences around the country. By the way, I played golf Monday. Yeah. Still had some bad holes. <laughs> and uh, I remember hitting one ball and I said, well, I'll be. And the fellows I was playing with said, well, you can, you can let it go. Yeah. And I said, that's as bad as it's going to get. <laughs> uh, what a joy to renew acquaintances and to be with you. Uh, God is good. Yes. He is so good. My wife and I uh, traveled down. We started yesterday and... Uh, I left yesterday morning, I had kind of a kink in my shoulder. And we stayed last night in Valdosta, Georgia. And by about 3 o'clock in the morning, I was ready to bite on the bullet. I mean, I had such pain in my shoulder and down my arm, I could not believe it. So we, uh, we visited the, uh, the local hospital in the emergency room. And uh, they gave me a, a shot and a prescription. I took a lot of my money, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, tonight it's just amazing how much better I feel right. than I did at three o'clock this morning. <laughs> I'm just thankful to God uh, for that. Uh, I have been down the road a long time. Uh, now in my mid seventies, and uh, but God's been good to us, and uh, Amen. Uh, I do keep busy. I just finished this last year being interim pastor of a church in northern Michigan. Got that God put it back on its feet in a marvelous way. And it's going well. They have a new pastor. And then this summer we moved to Chapel Hill, Tennessee, and their church is a big mess down there. It looks like the first of February I'll be called to be the interim pastor there. I just agreed to be on a board of a mission that's uh, working with the people in New Orleans and Slidell, Louisiana. And so. As long as the Lord gives me strength, we'll just uh, keep moving forward, and we're, we're thankful that. I'm kind of reminded, uh, my wife and I left the cold of Michigan last spring. Our oldest son had moved from the state to Southern California to accept another position. Um, my wife really needed to get out of the cold, and uh, our best friend, many of you know Joe Dockery. Uh, Joe traveled with me in many times, many conferences. Uh, by the way, Joe's health is not good right now, or he'd be here uh, tonight. Uh, he lives in Chapel Hill, or near Chapel Hill, and so uh, God just led in a wonderful way for us to move down there. But it's a it's a little town south of about 50 miles south of Nashville, and uh, downtown Chapel Hill is about two blocks. You know, it's just one of those kind of towns. And uh, where the drugstore used to be, they moved out to a fancy new building just recently. But where it used to be downtown, there's a bench in front of it. Billy Bob and Bubba were sitting there on the bench, two little fellas from the area. And Billy Bob said, uh, Bubba, he said, I am really feeling old. He said, I get up in the morning, I can't get out of bed. He said, I ache every place there is to ache. He said, I'm just having real difficulty. Said, Bubba, how do you feel? Bubba said, ah, he said, I feel like a newborn baby. What do you mean you feel like a newborn baby? Bubba said, I don't have any teeth. I don't have any hair. I think I just wet my pants. <laughs> well, I'd like to have been asked to share a little bit of the history of this ride. It's kind of interesting. When I was in seminary, I told the 
the uh, president of our seminary, I said, uh, I, I don't have a lot of patience. And I don't know I could pastor a church. I mean, committees would drive me right up the wall. And uh, I said, but I, I'd like to do something like uh, Bible teaching or evangelists, something like that. I really feel that God could use me in that area. And he very wisely said to me, well, Rogers, I think, that, I think you're gifted in that area. I think that would be great. But I think you ought to pastor a church for a year or two first, so you know where those pastors are coming from. So 25 years later, God thrust me into a ministry of, of traveling around the, the world, teaching uh, the end times, and it has been, I just am just thrilled beyond what words can explain to have had the opportunity to do so. I met uh, Brother Phillips here tonight, who was at one of my very first conferences up in the Louisville, Kentucky area, Shepherdsville, I think it was, in, in a church there. Uh, it's just uh, thrilling to uh, see what God has done. Let me read uh, a passage of scripture for you. This is familiar to all of you, but I am just constantly reminded of this passage. It's in 1st, 2nd Timothy chapter 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times, and the idea there is difficult to endure, times will uh, come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although their lives have denied its power and avoid such men as these. For among them there are those who have entered into households and captivated weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth I used to think of that I kind of, kind of thought those are that's the fringe no longer that's where much of the church of Jesus Christ is today unfortunately I just heard just this week I was listening to the radio I was traveling and uh, listening to the radio and uh, the divorce rate among Christians is equal to the divorce rate among yes. non-Christians now, what does that say? Um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and uh, moved from a little town to some folks from New Richmond, Wisconsin. I was born up in that country in 1942 during the war. My dad moved the whole family to Milwaukee and we thought it was the end of the world. I'll tell you how backward we were. We moved into Milwaukee and my mother was, was four kids in the family. I'm the oldest of eight, but there was four of us then. And she was very concerned that we get hit by a car. I mean, living in the city, all that traffic, I mean, 1942. And, uh, I mean, she was just really worried. And the first day we were there, we came up missing, all four of us. And she panicked. And she's screaming for us. She found us in the bathroom. We were flushing the toilet. We had never seen anything like that before. <laughs> but I grew up in Milwaukee, and God and his... Marvelous grace led us to a church that that loved people. Amen. Now it was a typical church of the forties, very legalistic, and uh, you know you live by the rules. We didn't dance, we didn't play cards, we didn't go to movies. And our motivation, and I remember it well, for not going to a movie is that if Jesus would come, you wouldn't want to be caught in a movie theater, would you? Heavens, no. That was BT, by the way, before television. Uh, and uh, that was that was the kind of 
teaching that uh, that I was given. The pastor was a good Bible teacher. He was pre-trib. Uh, I didn't question it. After high school, I went, this was about 100 years ago, I went to Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> and uh, it was very much like my home church. Very legalistic back then and uh, taught the same thing. And I didn't question it. And uh, after a couple of years, uh, I majored in basketball and ping pong at Moody. And somehow or other, the, the faculty didn't really care for that. <laughs> I was good at both. <laughs> but uh, I left Moody after a couple of years and uh, went to the service, got married, and yet the call of God was on my life. You know, just and I remember sitting down with my pastor and saying, I can't get rid of this thing. And he said, Roger, if you can do anything else but go in the ministry, do it. And I couldn't. So at age 34... When the Lord finally got a hold of my wife's heart in such a way that she could see that this was the call as well, we packed up our three little boys and headed to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I finished my education at Grand Rapids Baptist College and Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary. Now, I'm 30. When I went to Moody, I was 18 years old. And I had some of these professors like P.B. Fitzwater and Norman Bartlett and G. Coleman Luck. They had been in our church in Milwaukee to speak, and Kenneth Wiest, oh, I admired these men to no end, and I wouldn't dare ask them any kind of a question that they would think ill of me, and so I did it. But when I got to Grand Rapids, I'm 34 years old, I'm older than some of the professors, and I'm, I'm in a hurry, I'd wasted some time, and I wanted answers. And I remember in a particular class, we were... Uh, discussing the prophetic influences of the Apostle Paul. Of course, you can't do that without going to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. <laughs> and I raised the question, due to your, our belief, is the way I put it, if I remember correctly, due to our belief in a pre-trib rapture, how does the chronology of 2nd Thessalonians 2 fit? And he looked at me like I was enemy number one. He's an older man. And uh, then he began to laugh. And he said, Roger, you're not supposed to ask those kind of questions. <laughs> and you know what? Everybody laughed. And then he went on teaching and never did answer my question. And that began my struggle. In 1970, I was pastoring by then, and uh, a man by the name of Robert Gundry came out with a book entitled The Church and the Tribulation. Excellent book, by the way. And I knew that he had grown up in the same circles that I had. And I thought, maybe he's got this thing figured out. And I read the book and was shocked. He's post-trip. But boy, did he answer a lot of my questions. And now I'm confused. <laughs> so I did, like a lot of pastors, I just kind of hung in there. I got uh, this email just last week. It's an invitation to a conference up in Ohio in March. And I just want to read you a little part of it. He says, next year we're going to deal with the issue of the Millennial Kingdom. Dr. Richard Gaffin will teach on the Amillennial View. Dr. Ken Dick Gentry will deal with the Postmillennial View. And Dr. Tom Ice will handle the Premillennial View. If you are like me, your eschatology is a little in flux and this will help you to sort out some of the finer points between the views. 
Yeah, how ridiculous. And I sat back and I thought, you know, that's where I used to be. That's where I used to be. Now, I'm not sure going to this conference on the various homiletic views is going to solve anyone's problem, but uh, that's where a lot of pastors are. And I, I, through the years in teaching and traveling all over, I, I had countless pastors say to me, no, I don't, I don't teach on end times. It's too controversial. I was just in a church about three weeks ago on a Sunday evening, and the pastor made this comment. He said, he's a retired pastor. He's, he was filling the pulpit. And he said, I taught through the book of the Revelation for a year, and it was the driest year our church ever had. <laughs> and I wanted to jump up and say, you don't know the book of the Revelation. <laughs> and uh, it, that, that, that's where my thought process sees work. In 1980, I was pastoring in Mesquite, Michigan, and God sent me on a wilderness journey to Southern California, where I stayed for eight years, and uh, God had purpose in that. Uh, I got out there, it didn't take me very long to say, Lord, what are you doing? Uh, I remember hearing a dear black brother on the radio after I, shortly, shortly after I arrived in Southern California, he said, people does not move to Southern California to go to church. He said, they come here to play. Boy, was he right. And a whole different culture out there. But in the process, uh, I knew the president and vice president of Los Angeles Baptist College. And I had served on the board of directors of Grand Rapids Baptist College in the 70s and left that when I moved to California. And they invited me to be on their board, and with some resistance finally talked me into it. And the school was in big trouble. And in 1985, just a miracle of God, John MacArthur became the president of Los Angeles Baptist College, and we changed the name to the Master's College. In the fall of 1985, we had our first board meeting, and at lunch that day, John MacArthur came to me. Now, I had known John before, and uh, at lunch that day, John came to me, and he said, Roger, I want to introduce you to another man from the Midwest. He said, this is Robert Van Campen. Who Robert Van Campen was, but it changed my life. It changed my life. It was all in the sovereign plan of God. And uh, make a long story short, a couple of he sat down. We had lunch together. Uh, two years later, I moved, took a church back in the western shore of Michigan, near Holland, Michigan, a little town called Zealand. And uh, I wasn't there very long. And uh, Bob Van Campen and his wife showed up on a Wednesday evening. I'll never forget it. I was so embarrassed. I taught, and then we broke up into prayer groups, and Bob said, let's go to your study. And if any of you who have ever met Bob knew that he was he, he was very intensive, and I mean, he was just charged all the way, you know? So I thought, oh boy, I guess I'm in trouble. So we went to the study, and the first thing he said to me, I'll never forget, he said, Roger, I didn't know you could teach like that. <laughs> Come to my house tomorrow night for dinner. Well, he had a, a home at that time, which was a vacation getaway, just south of Grand Haven, Michigan, which is only about 20 miles from where I was pastor. And uh, we went up on Thursday night, and uh, he wanted us to get there early. He had purpose in that. And he owned about, I don't know if Charles was, or 25, 30 acres there, something like that, along the lakeshore of Michigan. And it was all wooded land, and so we went for a walk in the woods. The first question he asked me, Roger, what do you believe about creation? 
So I told him what I believed about creation. He said, where did you learn that? And I said, well, we'll study the word and good teachers. And then he got on to other issues. One of his real hot buttons was, Roger, what do you believe about the role of the man and the woman in the Bible? That was really an issue with him. And I told him, I can't believe it. He said, took me years to get to that. And he said, that's what you believe? Said, that's what I believe. Well, after going through a whole list of doctrine, he said, Roger, what do you believe about end times? And I said, Bob, let's not go there. <laughs> I said, I, I don't know. He said, well, what, what passage in the book of the Revelation is, is your troubled passage? He said, isn't the book of the Revelation that troubles me? It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've got to get together. He said, we've got to get together. That was the beginning. Invited me to Chicago, North Chicago, where he lived. And I saw those cork boards that some of you have read about, where he put up all the three-by-five cards. In fact, I'm the one who talked him into putting that into a computer so he wouldn't have to put all of it up on the boards. And uh, uh, he was going through. He began calling me at 7 o'clock every morning. I mean, I could pick up every morning except Sunday. I could pick up the phone at 7 o'clock and say, morning, Bob. I knew it was him. <laughs> he said, who said this? What does this great word mean? Always had something for me to dig into. And I'm struggling with this. I mean, my pastor, who was my pastor for 29 years in my church, who I loved dearly, he was pre-trip. My professors at Moody, my professors at Grand Rapids Baptist, who I loved, were all pre-trib. What's the problem? Well, it, I believe it was 1988. Marvin Rosenthal, who I have, I've known Marv forever, used to have Marv in my church back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Marv was speaking at the graduation of Master's College. And we always had a board meeting that coincided with the graduation. And uh, the Bob was on the board then. He, we, uh, of course, I had pastored out there. And I was now back in Michigan, so I had a lot of friends. And somebody called me and wanted to get together, and I went out for dinner with somebody. And we were staying in the Hampton Inn near the Master's College, and I remember coming in, and you know in the Hampton Inns they got this place where they had the breakfast with the tables? And there's Bob, Van Campen, and Mark Rosenthal sitting talking. And Bob says, Archer, get over here, get over here, come here. He says, you got to hear this. Well, Mark was still with Friends of Israel, and he probably talked a little bit about this. I don't want to steal his thunder, but uh, he was putting together a presentation to give to their board, of which Bob was a member. And uh, I sat there. I got there about 9.30. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was so convinced that pre, that pre-wrath was biblical <laughs> that I was willing to die for it. I mean, they just answered every... And I didn't say a word. I just listened. And uh, then in 1989, Mark's book came out, uh, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church. And it was controversial. Uh, but uh, I, think, I still think it's a great book. And uh, remember being in Chicago with Bob, and Bob said to Roger, he said, this thing's going to develop into a ministry. And there's only one person who can lead it, and that's you. I said, wait a minute. I'm pastoring churches. Back in those days, quite a large church. You know, we run five, 600 on Sunday morning, and, and going church, a lot of things happening. There was some controversy in the church and difficulty, but that was that's the history of my pastor. I'd go to a church that was in trouble and just about the time the Lord would work out all the problems and he'd send me another one that was in trouble. Uh, you know, it takes seven, eight years. <laughs> and I never looked for a change, but God brought that about. And uh, I went up to the Master's College 
for a board meeting in February. And when I got back to the Masters College, the chairman of the deacons called me and he said, uh, we, we need to have lunch tomorrow. And he said, the building committee and the deacons had a big problem while you were gone. And we've decided to put our building program, which they started back in 1975, uh, this is now 1989, 1990, uh, we put it on the shelf for a year. And to me, it was like God saying, okay, the door's open. I wasn't going to leave in the middle of a building program. And so uh, Bob, Bob, of course, called me soon after that. Roger, when are you going to come and start this ministry? And I said, first of May. <laughs> now, how do you start a ministry? The sign wasn't published then. So uh, he said, well, go down and work with Mark. So we came to Florida. We lived down by St. Cloud and, and uh, worked with Marv. That's... Uh, uh, when he was first moving into the facility there on, on I-4. And uh, Marv was very busy. He was in all kinds of things, and it was just kind of up to me to do what you do. Now, what do you do? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, I began thinking about it, and I thought, you know, you really ought to begin with the pastors. That's a good place to start. So I looked up Clearwater, Tampa, Clearwater area, went through the phone book, and I, I listed all the evangelical pastors, and I sent them all a letter and said, we're going to have a conference at the Holiday Inn in Clearwater. Uh, for one day, lunch will be provided. Encourage you to come. I thought, boy, 15 come, it's going to be something. Well, I got there, it was about 60 that were there. Now, back then, I had some overhead transparencies that I made, and I'm not the artist. Later, Scott Holmgren came with us, and... He did some beautiful stuff. But I had these transparencies in it, and I gave the presentation. And these pastors just, they loved it. They, they were interested. It, you know, I can remember some of them saying, it, it looks like there is an answer to this thing. Well, I thought, well, Jacksonville would be a good place to do it. I went, Jacksonville did the same thing. In fact, I went to Jacksonville a couple of times. We had such good response up there. And just around the Florida area, well, then in 1993, Bob called me and he said, uh, I've decided to move out of Chicago and move to Michigan. We're going to move to the property up there, build a new home. And uh, I'd like to have you come back since the ministry is just starting and help us start a church. And so, uh, folks, you Florida people, God bless you. But my wife and I, we really don't care for Florida that much. <laughs> so uh, we were happy to go back to Michigan. And... Uh, and Health Start, which is now Grace Church Harvest Bible Chapel in West Olive, uh, Michigan. And uh, But while we were here in 1992, the sign was published. Now that's a story in itself. Uh, Bob Van Campen had these loose leaf binders. I didn't know where he got them. They were the largest loose leaf binders I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they were that thick, you know? And he had a stack full of papers, all his notes. And I'd read through those notes, and I thought, this is powerful stuff. And, and along with Marv Rosenthal and a couple of other people, we said, Marv, you've got to take these notes and put them in a book. I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer. That's not my thing. You've got to do it. Now, you, you got to understand that Bob Van Campo, well, he was a sinner saved by grace, and he had his faults. He was an unusual individual. Well, he took him down to Crossway Publishing Company, and uh, Lane Dennis, who was in charge there, said, well, I'm going away for a month. I'll take these notes with me and take a look at them. 
Now, we made the mistake of telling Bob. You didn't tell Bob anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You made suggestions to him. I learned real early on to say to Bob, Bob, have you ever considered this? And then we go along just fine. But I go, Bob, Bob you're wrong. Who was I in trouble? Charles found that out as well. <laughs> and uh, uh, Marv and I both remember, and I think some others told Bob, Bob, you got to make these notes readable. You got to make them so a 60 year old lady, 65 year old lady who's living alone can get this and, and read them and it makes sense to her. Bob didn't like that. Yeah, so he took him to Lane Dennis. Lane went away on a Caribbean vacation for a month, came back, called Bob and said, this stuff's terrific. So we just have to make it readable. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they worked with him, and the first copy of the sign came out in July of 1992. Now, I don't recall. I can recall the discussion, but I don't recall whose idea of what it all was. But between Bob and myself, we decided to put an address and an 800 number in the back of the book. I was living down south of St. Cloud in a place called Canoe Creek Woods. And uh, my office was in my house. It was one of these houses where the master bedrooms on one end and the guest bedrooms are on the other end. And one of those guest bedrooms was my office. And so the 800 number went into that room. Now, what I didn't think about was that when it's 2 o'clock in the morning here, it's only 11 o'clock out in California. So 2 o'clock in the morning, that phone would ring, and my wife would be so upset with me. I'm out of bed in there, I couldn't miss a call. I mean, I wanted to get every call. Within three months, you ready for this? Within three months of the publication of the sign, we had gotten a telephone call from every state in the union, with the exception of Delaware and North Dakota. I couldn't figure out Delaware, but I realized nobody lives in North Dakota. So, it, and later, of course, we did get calls from the, from that area. But we had calls from all over. I remember one of the early calls. So I say I grew up in a church. It was an independent church. It was in an association. We had national conferences. I get to know pastors at the national conferences. And this pastor from the state of New York called me. And he told me who it was, and I thought, ooh, am I in trouble? He's going to give it to me. And he said to me, Roger, how did we miss it? Now, this man was well in his 80s at that time. How did we miss it? And boy, that was like lighting my fuse. <laughs> I'll tell you, that, that was such an encouragement. Because I knew this man, a godly man. And, and God just began to build upon this. Uh, we continue to do some conferences. I moved back to Michigan in 1993 to help start Grace Church. By the way, what a blessing that start a church in your living room. And just in 1993, and just these years later, we were just up there in September for the dedication of a new 1,000-seat auditorium. Amen. And the church is solidly pre-wrath. Solidly pre-wrath. And uh, just to reach respect, when we get a staff member, we, I have six men on the staff now, and every time we get a new one, where are you with eschatology? And you know, it's interesting. Every every man that we hired, with, with the exception of the pastor, who's been with us for 11 years, everyone that we hired was, uh, well, I I don't know that this is what I've been taught, and uh, they kind of give you the answers. You know, it didn't take long between myself. And uh, Bob Van Camp and son-in-law David was saying, 
and uh, they're free rats. <laughs> and uh, it's just exciting to see what God is doing uh, in, in, in the church there. Um, we began to uh, expand the ministry. Again, I'm looking for ideas on how to, how to make this thing get it out. How do you get the word out? And uh, I came up with the idea. A friend of mine kind of talked to me about it. Maybe you remember Hal Cutchall? Uh, Hal came up with this idea and talked to me about it. We'd have prophecy over lunch. And in Holland, Michigan, we got a room in a, big, in a restaurant and sent out notes to around town, advertised it a little bit, that for six weeks we're going to be teaching prophecy. You eat lunch, I'll teach prophecy. <laughs> I thought, great, you know, we'll have a dozen guys there. Yeah. They're like 50. Come, president of the bank, you know, presidents of companies, everybody, they're all interested. Now, you understand that Holland, Michigan is the headquarters of the Reformed Church of America, and they are so amillennial. I mean, they are, they allegorize scripture, and these guys are just hungry to, hey, what does the Bible really say? And I remember saying to them, you know, in the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, if it says a thousand years, and, and Charles used to beat on this all the time, if it says a thousand years, that means a thousand years. There's going to be a kingdom of a thousand years. And if that isn't true, then how can you say John 3.16 is true? Truth is truth. And what I found as I began to travel in, the shocking thing to me as I began to travel was how many pastors out there are hurting. I spent a lot of time just sitting and praying with pastors. I remember I went to Colorado Springs early in the ministry. A young pastor in a church out there. And he said, I'm hurting. And we went. He'd grown up out there. He took me to places... I did my basic training at Fort Carson out there, but he took me to places up in the mountains I never dreamed existed. And we spent a day up there just talking and trying to encourage him in the Word. And, you know, I, I remember telling him that Jeremiah wasn't too well-liked either, you know. And just hang in there and be true to the Word, and God will bless. I found out a lesson early in life. While I was in school, I pastored a church uh, north of Grand Rapids. Oh, you talk about a troubled church. I had uh, seven deacons, a church of about 250 people, and uh, three of the deacons came from one large family that had been in the church 100 years, and three of them came from another large family that had been in the church for 100 years, and they hated each other. Yeah. And then there was one other guy who, man, first family to get to him. <laughs> you know? And I mean, we'd vote on whether the sun will come up tomorrow, and it was 4-3. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was a trouble. But there was a dear old man in the church, and he ran a little hardware store, kind of a junky little place. And it was Mr. Johnson, dear Mr. Johnson. And he gave me more words of wisdom. And the greatest word he ever gave to me was, Pastor, I know you're working so hard. He said, you don't have to build this church. Christ said, he will build the church. And all you have to do is be faithful. It was one of the greatest lessons the ministry had ever learned. I ever learned. And so when it came to teaching something as controversial as pre-wrath and end times, uh, God had prepared me for that. God had also prepared me in that I grew up in Milwaukee in a German-Jewish neighborhood. I went to North Division High School. We called it North Division. 
Uh, I walk to school every day with my two buddies from my block, Leland Klipstein and Asher Cornfield, and those are not Gentile names, folks. <laughs> but God gave me a love for Jewish people. Asher was not a fighter. He's a very successful doctor in Milwaukee, uh, but he was not a fighter. I was. <laughs> and there are more times some derogatory thing would be said to Asher and they had to face me. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I often lost that too. <laughs> but uh, God gave me a love for him, and that fits right into the whole teaching of end times. I went to an elementary school in 1942, and there was a picture of a lady, on the young lady, on the wall in the school. Her name was Miss Meyerson. Miss Meyerson had left in 1940 to move to Israel. She was born in Russia, grew up in Milwaukee, went to Milwaukee State Teachers College, which is now the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and you would know her as Golda Meir. You know, God put all of that in my background to prepare me uh, for this kind of study and this kind of teaching. But that phone kept ringing, and we Bob built his house, and uh, before he built it, he bought another one that he lived in for a while, and the vacation spot that he had up there, some of you have been there, uh, in Getty, uh, we converted into the science ministry headquarters. And uh, the first two to come on staff were Dean Tisch and Scott Holmgren. And Dean is the kind of guy that just, uh, he'd do anything That's for right. anybody. He was just the greatest guy, and he learned how to answer the phone. He, the first year, I thought I was going to go crazy, because after every phone call, he was in my office now. What should I say to him? How do I answer this? You know? <laughs> and, but just a, a great guy, and, and, and the ministry developed. Uh, I thought, you know, we gotta, we've got to do something more to get the word out. So we came up with the idea of a little magazine. Some of you remember this. This is the first issue. Uh, Parousia or Perusia? Neither, neither, however you want to pronounce it. <laughs> uh, and the first number of issues, I wrote the main articles in them. But uh, God has blessed me with some abilities, but writing is not one of them. And I struggled every time I wrote. And then God brought into our midst the writer, Charles Cooper. Amen. In fact, we used to go out, as we did our prophecy conferences, Charles and I did a lot of conferences together. And Dean Tish used to say that salt and pepper on prophecy. <laughs> and uh, we just learned to love each other. And in fact, we got so well acquainted that we knew just what the other guy was going to say <laughs> as we uh, shared in, in conferences. And uh, in that, and if you haven't read it, I think you can still get it online. But Charles wrote probably the greatest article, in my estimation, ever written in our magazine. And it was this one here entitled Legs to Stand On. Yes. Legs to Stand On. Yeah. Boy, if, you, if you're talking to somebody who's got an argument against the pre-wrath movement, this is the article. This is the article. And so the, the ministry began to develop. We began to get phone calls from pastors saying, can you come to our church and teach this? Sure. Now, we were in a very envious situation in that Robert Van Campen was a wealthy man. God had blessed him. <laughs> Let me just briefly tell you his story. He worked for a number of companies after he got out of the army. I believe he was a captain in the army. He got out of the army and he worked for a number of companies. And in 19, late 1968, he went to work for Nouvelle, which is a mutual bond company. 
on commission only. His wife thought this was the end of the world. You know, commission only. His first year, he became known as the Charger. In fact, when he passed away, the Wall Street Journal entitled their article, Bob, parentheses, the Charger, Van Campen. And the first year, he made more money than the president of the company. He's that kind of an individual. And uh, so they changed the rules so it couldn't happen again. And so he quit. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, uh, his dad, who was, didn't have nearly the wealth that Bob ended up having, but was a successful businessman. He was in the publishing business. If you have some old, in fact, he was the first one to publish Louis Sperry Schaeffer's uh, theology, uh, systematic theology books uh, out of Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, I remember his dad saying, I just saw the potential. So I told Bob, here, I'll give you $200,000, go start your own business. And in 1970, he started the company that became known as Van Campen Merit, today known as Van Campen Funds. And in 1985, he sold it to Xerox. And this is how he tell it. Roger, if you started a company for $200,000, what he did was go downtown Chicago and rent an office, hire a secretary, and put in a phone. I mean, that's, that was it. So if you started a company in 1970 and you had $200,000 to start with, and 15 years later you sold it for $20 million, you'd be successful. 50 million, he said, you'd be a genius. He said, well, I sold Van Camp and Merritt for more money than God ever ought to allow any Christian to have. It was over $300 million. That's the kind of man he was. I tell you that because with that same intensity, he studied the Word of God. He'd wear his Bible out. Bob could not turn a page in his Bible. He had to flip it. And he wrote all over everything. And he just charged, charged, charged. That was his life. Uh, I guess that's why he only lived to be 60. <laughs> uh, but he, he was just, he was full force for the Lord. And he loved pastors. He used to tell me, he says, when you go to these churches, take the pastor and his wife out for dinner. They need it. Take them to a nice place. Sure. <laughs> like that, you know. Uh, that's the kind of guy he was. So he funded our ministry. So he said, it doesn't matter if a church is 30 people. It doesn't matter if a church is 3,000 people. If they're interested and they allow you to share the message without changing it, go. And so we had that privilege. And so we tell the pastor, well, you want to take a love offering for us? That'd be fine. They'll go back to the ministry. We're paid a salary. Everything's paid for. And as a result... Uh, we, we began to spread the word out. Oh, I think I've been in most states teaching in the United States, quite a few places in Canada, and a lot of places around the world. I'll get into that a little bit tomorrow morning, the, the worldwide ministry. But uh, God just continued to open doors. And more and more people in uh, 1994, a man by the name of Joe Dockery, I mentioned him earlier, some of you know him, a businessman, very successful businessman. He's, that's why we moved to Chapel Hill. Joe's become my best friend. We went to India for a month. And uh, I, I said to Joe, uh, well, first of all, let me say, he, he called me, and he read the book. He said, I've never read anything like this before. This is unreal. That's his phrase. Is, Everything's unreal to Joe. This is unreal. He says, can we come up, can I bring some pastors and come up and meet you? Sure. So we brought three pastors from Nashville, three of the biggest churches in Nashville, and he brought these guys up to the mission, and we met. Well, then he, he, his next door neighbor, they wanted to have a, 
ministry and they wanted to broaden it to teaching prophecy to how to prepare for end times and all of that and we got in that we did uh, four or five conferences and we found out that a couple of fellows were more interested in Joe's money than they were the truth and so we separated and so I said to Joe Joe you want to change your life I said I'm going to go to India and I've got pastor's conferences for a month why don't you go with me that was the most stupid thing I ever did because India is a difficult place and to go there for a month I remember two weeks after we were there we were sitting in Bangalore uh, India on a Beautiful, big hotel, and we're sitting on a couple of army cots in the hotel room. I mean, the, the, that's how it is over there. And uh, Joe said, Roger, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And I told him, I said, Joe, either we're going to become best friends or worst enemies. And we became best friends. And uh, God just continued to bring people like that into our lives. Some of you brought into our lives as the ministry began to expand. And we've not been sensationalist. We've not went ones to go out and beat the wagon and be on TV and all of that kind of stuff all over. We could have. But we felt this God is sovereign. This is a work of God. And if there's one thing I want to leave you with tonight, it's this. The most important thing that I have taught down through the years in the sign ministries, the most important thing that Charles has taught, the most important thing that any of our teachers taught is you need to have a right approach to Scripture. <laughs> you need to have a right approach to Scripture. And Bob gives it in his book. Charles has refined it a little bit. Whereas Charles was the hermeneutic teacher at Moody. He, he knows all about that. And, and I love what he's done. But we need to... We, and, and a phrase that I don't know who came up with it. Maybe Charles came up with this uh, back when he first came with us. Uh, we need to... We do not define truth. We discover it. Yes, that's right. And that's the key. Because every time I find a disagreement, it's because of the approach to Scripture. If you take Scripture for what it says, take it at face value, and recognize that Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation 22 is truth, all truth, can't contradict, it all fits together, things begin to flow. And many of you have realized that in your study. As you see it flow together and work together, and that's that's the real message that that we have to 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 get out. Now God, through His marvelous grace, uh, propelled us into a worldwide ministry. Never never thought of that. I've been to India a number of times. I've been all over South America. Brought, God brought Bob Myers and Wes Serena into our lives. Bob was in the mission agency that. The church that I pastored was very much involved in, and because he stood for pre-wrath, that was, it was over. And uh, we we met them, and Bob was impressed with them, and, and they did a ministry for us in South America. In fact, I, I worked a number of Spanish-speaking bookseller shows in Miami, and, and we did everything we could to get to our bit of Mexico City with Bob, and, and uh, we did everything we could to promote it all over the world. I want to tell you something. The pre-wrath position, you know where the most difficult place to teach it is? The United States of America. It's the most difficult place. Overseas. I had a dear Indian brother come to me, tears streaming down his face, and they don't get that emotion. And he said, American Christians, 
He said, there's two things they don't know much about. Sacrifice and suffering. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely right. And we suffer, you know, physical ailments and things. But he's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. The last time I was in India, pastor came in after the service in the morning. We were in his church, about 60 people. He came in afterwards and he was, I knew he was distraught. Uh, what happened? You know, Stephen Mandela is in Secunderabad, India. I said, Stephen, what's the problem? And he said, my wife's Victoria, my wife Victoria's uncle was just killed this morning because he's preaching the gospel. Passed in a little village church of 15, 20 people. Mm-hmm. And they came in during service and killed him. We don't know anything about that. Right. We want it easy and you know, this any moment rapture thing is just a wonderful thing. I'm out of here, you know. Uh, I like it too. But uh, it's not biblical. You know, that's just the one problem that I had in, in struggling with the preacher of position. Where in the Bible does it say Christ could come at any moment? And it doesn't. It's all because it says this and because it says this, we can assume. One dear brother wrote a book and Kevin Howard, who used to be with Marv, counted, I think it was 37 times in that book he used the word assume. You can't be very dogmatic about assumptions. Okay. So it just gives you a little background in the beginning. I can tell you a lot more. Tomorrow morning I'd like to get into a little bit of the worldwide ministry and how God thrust us out. Oh, it's, just, it's just incredible what God did in, in, in a worldwide ministry and the reception that we had and I'm hearing from some of those people overseas. I'll read a letter to you tomorrow. I'm hearing from those people overseas where I was there five, ten years ago. And they're still following on and just thanking me for coming and sharing it with them. So God bless you. It's so good to see you again. And we look forward to having you. I'm going to share with you in the morning.